Since the pandemic, work from home has become a hot, trendy topic. But Stanford economist Nick Bloom has been studying work from home for more than 20 years. Back in the 1990s when it was called telecommuting, he was studying this topic. He looked at 9-11 and how events like 9-11 shaped attitudes about remote work. And so he has the benefit of historical knowledge, and he shares that with us today. Welcome to the Afford Anything podcast, the show that understands you can afford anything but not everything. And that applies not just to your money, but to your time, your focus, your energy, your attention, to any limited resource that you need to manage. And that opens up two questions. First, what matters most? And second, how does that impact your decision making? This show is dedicated to answering those two questions. My name is Paula Pant. I am the host of Afford Anything. Today, Stanford economist Nick Bloom shares with us the surprising numbers behind work from home data and a deep discussion about productivity, collaboration, organizational dynamics, employee well-being, all of the challenges and the advantages of remote work. We talk about the way that remote work impacts you at the individual level, the way it impacts your team, your company or organization, the way it impacts your city, your home values. We talk about how it impacts different types of jobs and different sizes and locations of cities. We discuss the the far-ranging ramifications, again, with an economist who has been studying this since before 9-11, since before it became a trending topic. Back when the word for it was telecommuting, and Zoom hadn't been invented yet. So today's episode is an economics lesson, it's a history lesson, and it's food for thought in terms of how you want to think about your own career, your own path, company, trajectory. We dive into all of that with Stanford economist Professor Nick Bloom right now. Hi, Nick. Hi, thanks very much for having me on the show, Paula. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Before we get into your work from home research, I'd first like you to introduce yourself and talk about the wide array of research that you've done. I was looking at some of your papers that you've published, and they span quite a number of topics. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to bore people talking about it too much. But yes, I've been an academic for 25 years. I've worked a lot on uncertainty, measuring how much it is, which you can imagine during the pandemic was a big issue, actually after 9-11, the financial crisis. I also done a lot of work on management. Long ago, I worked in McKinsey, the consulting firm, and kind of out of that spun this interest on work from home, which I've been working on for 20 years. You know, how does it work? What's the future? And I have to say, no one was that interested in work from home until March 2020. <laughs> and then suddenly uh, it became a topic of huge fascination. You've been studying work from home for 20 years. What prompted you to initially study it at a time when few people were interested in it? And I presume there probably wasn't a ton of funding around it either. No, a couple of things, kind of personal prompts. I'm one of four kids. Um, I grew up, you can probably tell from my accent in the UK, in London, actually. And both my parents worked in the UK government, both would you know take it in turns to work from home to look after us? I'm 50, so my childhood was in the 80s, and it was before computers. So they were you know carry piles of paper home. One of them would be home one day, one the other, and I always wondered what that was like, how that affected their career. And then when I started work on this myself as an academic, actually my wife 
had been on maternity leave twice. And I was kind of thinking about how different companies treated that. So it's part of a bigger bundle, to be honest, mm. of being nice to employees. So think about maternity leave, paternity leave, you know, work from home, job sharing, part time. It's like, how does this work? Some firms seem really generous. For example, you know, Netflix would offer folks a year of paid maternity leave and other companies in the US offer you none beyond, you know, the federal minimum. And how does that affect performance and who's going where? And so I started just to collect data. You know, as an academic, I was like, can we measure what's going on and then figure out what works and what doesn't? You said you started collecting data. What were some of the data points that you collected in your early initial studies? I know these days, many people are collecting data about worker attitudes. Uh, I know you've done quite a bit of that as well. 20 years ago, was that also the data being collected or was there a different data set that you were interested in? 20 years ago, things were so different. It is so hard to cast your mind back that far. So actually, work from home was kind of born 40 years ago. Jack Nillis coined the term. It was invented, telecommuting at least in the 70s. So when I first started looking at it, it was, you know, how common is it? And do low or high performing firms seem to offer it? And what we found interestingly, when I first started working on this in the early 2000s, is firms that are profitable and well-managed are actually more likely to offer employees the ability to work from home. And when you looked at it, it looked like a lot of it was around organizational capability. So look, imagine if you're in chaos, you've got a delivery, you've got to put out by tonight, and you haven't started it yet, you're going to haul everyone in the office, and, you know, shout at them and hold them until midnight to get stuff done. Whereas if you're a really together company, you have good monitoring, good feedback systems, you're humming along, you can quite easily let employees work from home on Fridays or Monday. So that's what I found looking into it 20 years ago. And it kind of went against the grain a bit. So mm. back then, it used to be called working from home, shirking from home or working remotely, <laughs> remotely working. You know, huge skepticism. People joke that you're just goofing off or sleeping. The joke I remember back in the early 2000s is that the three enemies of work from home is the bed, the television and the fridge. <laughs> and everyone falls victim to one of them. And so it was kind of saying, well, look, we see actually this seems to work quite well. It's not this, you know, disaster. But that was 20 years ago when people were very skeptical. Right. You said you also studied uncertainty. And of course, there's a lot of uncertainty post 9-11. Did that have any ramifications on what at that time was probably referred to as telecommuting? Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that. So there are two or three episodes over history that I personally saw where you had these brief stints of work from home. One was 9-11. I remember in London, another one was the London Olympics, because they mm. told Londoners, look, it's going to be you know super crowded. There's too many people. You've got to stay home for three weeks. It was you know one of these periods. And so everyone worked from home. There was in Boston, there was a big, you know, what was it called? Snowmageddon. I've forgotten what it was, <laughs> the big freeze. It happens occasionally in US cities. They get so cold, no one can go into work for, you know, a couple of weeks. Often what you see in these little short episodes is it works out fine. People mm. work from home for a couple of weeks. The world doesn't come to an end. Companies perform well. Of course, the pandemic was really that on steroids. So right. the pandemic was kind of amazing because initially there was the lockdown. So everyone was forced into fully remote for about six months. And then the lockdowns, you know, came and went, but they were easing. But then what happened is we went into really tight labor markets. So if you remember beginning of 2021, it was mm -hmm. so hard to hire anyone. And so a lot of companies, when I talked to them, I mean, by now I've talked to, you know, easily more than a thousand managers and in firms would say, I remember back then was, it's so hard to hire anyone unless mm -hmm. we let them work from home at least two, three days a week, you know, forget it. And so that 
dragged work from home on for about another year until you'll get to 2022, at which point you've had it running for kind of two years and people come to the realization, look, this thing works pretty well. We maybe don't want to be fully remote, but we really quite like being able to work from home, say Monday, Friday. Employees are just as productive. It's easier to hire and retain people. And that's kind of where it stayed ever since. We'll get to modern day post-pandemic work from home in a moment. But given that you're one of the few who has this historical knowledge of what work from home was like far before anyone was paying attention to it, were there reasons it was not more adopted back then? We've always had the technical capabilities, the technological capabilities. I've been working remotely since 2010. (laughs) Back then, we used to call it being location independent. Yes. That was a phrase for it. But I often wondered at that time why it was not more practiced. So it's really interesting, the percent of days Americans have worked from home going back to the 1960s. So -hmm. if you go back to the beginning of the day to 1965, I mean, this is, you know, what almost 50 years ago. If you look then, what we see is half a percent of days will work from home. So hardly any, you know, basically one in 200. No one worked from home in the 60s. By the time you get to the 80s, it's like 1%. By the 90s, it's 2-3, and it is crawling up. And in fact, it's actually rising quite fast from a low base. And it's all driven by technology. So the key technology is personal computers. So once you have your own computer at home, you're not shuffling pieces of paper. Then you have email and the internet. Really, the last jigsaw pieces for what we're using now came in about 2010, 2011, 2012, which was cloud and things like Dropbox, so we can share files Paul, if you and I are working on the same file, I don't need to be emailing it back and forth. They sync automatically. And the other big thing was video calls. So Zoom mm-hmm. in particular, but Skype, Teams, etc. Zoom, for example, was founded in 2012. So if we look back about a decade ago, by 2013, we could have been doing this. Why we didn't adopt it in such numbers until 2020, I think was kind of slow to react as a bit of a mistake. You know, there are other things. I always think I have kids in school and they have these massive summer holidays, like three months off. And we have these huge summer holidays because kids used to, 150 years ago, be let out of school to harvest the fields, right? No children are doing that anymore, but we still have these three-month summer holidays. And it's kind of a legacy. And I think going into the office five days a week for everyone was basically a legacy as well. And that legacy could have been abandoned 10 years ago. And it took the pandemic to shake it up. Let's talk through some of the data that you've gathered. So just so we have some facts in front of us, I'm looking at the June 2023 update, and it's quite robust with regard to the data that you've gathered around the number of people who work from home, the number of days worked. Can you walk us through some of this? Sure. So two numbers to have in mind. One is how many days are work from home now? It's about 25% of days in America, and it's been flat since about September 2022. So we're kind of flattening out. So right now, a lot of folks say, we're all heading back into the office. I'm like, no, this is the new normal. We basically had a huge surge during the pandemic. It was up at 60%. Most Americans are working most days at home. And it's been falling, falling, falling. But it's basically flatlined for the last six to nine months. And it's interesting. I often talk to folks, they're kind of surprised and say, look, in the media, I read stories all the time at you know, about Twitter or JP Morgan or Goldman Sachs hauling folks back in. And I'm like, yes, that's true. But what's not reported is there are just as many firms saying things like, I need to cut costs, I'm going to reduce the office space and have more people work from home, particularly actually back office staff, so like HR support payroll. 
So what fact one is about one quarter of days of work from home in the US. The other fact is who's doing that? What we see is about 60% of Americans don't work from home at all. So the biggest group, these are folks, you know, think of working at McDonald's, in schools, in hospitals, transport. They tend to be lower paid, but not entirely. Like airline pilots, you know, they never mm-hmm. work from home. No one really wants their <laughs> plane flown remotely or, you know, top surgeons. <laughs> so the biggest group don't work from home, that's 60%. There's another 30%, which I'm guessing would be many of your listeners, are what's called hybrid. So they're typically in the office, let's say Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, work from home Monday, Friday. That's a lot of my graduates from Stanford, a lot of, you know, basically college grads tend to be in that. And then the third group, the smallest group is fully remote. Mm -hmm. These are people who never really go in at all. That group is shrinking pretty rapidly. The reason is, you know, firstly, who are they? If you look at that group, a lot of them, I mean, Paula, you mentioned you're fully remote. Mm -hmm. You're probably in some ways unusual for that group. If you look at most of that group, it's now kind of payroll, HR, IT support, a lot of back office processes, that stuff, some of it's being shifted overseas and some of it is going to be slowly replaced by AI. So if you think of ChatGPT4, you know, imagine in three years what ChatGPT6 will be like. Right. I think the future is really two types of workers, you know, mostly the those that come in every day and another that are office workers, managers, professionals that are coming in Tuesday to Thursday, typically working from home Monday, Friday. One piece of data that surprised me is that workers in their 50s and 60s are more likely to work from home than younger workers. Yes. So what we see is, you're right, as people get older, they tend to go to one extreme or the other. It's kind of interesting. So folks in there, you know, I'm 50, so that's my bucket, but people 50 plus tend to either be fully in person and it's partly the job they do, but also partly a little bit of, you know, look, by the time you're 50, I've been working now for 30 years, you get, you know, settled into a habit and you quite like going in every day and you, you know, typically don't have kids often in the house anymore. And then there's another group in that age bucket that are fully remote. That's often people who maybe find it harder, you know, they have some mild disability or maybe then, you know, their walking isn't as great or they live further out, out in the suburbs or rural areas. It's just hard for them to get in every day. Mm-hmm. If I think of my parents, for example, uh, you know, before they retired, they started doing more and more remote work because the commute is pretty tiring, particularly in big cities. You know, if you're in New York, it's up to an hour each way. If you're on the subway, it's quite an arduous journey. So you're right. If you look at 2030s, they tend to be more likely to be hybrid. If you look at 50 pluses, more likely to be either fully in person or fully remote. Hmm. What ramifications does remote work have for collaboration and creativity? Yeah, this is, you know, the $64,000 question. So why is hybrid dominated uh, for professionals and managers? The reason is you're really trading off a couple of things. So on the one hand, the reason people want to come into work uh, and why firms want their employees in is for collaboration, creativity. So the big three of coming in, when you talk to managers, they say, look, we want mentoring. It's much, it turns out to look be better in person. We want collaboration, building culture, we want innovation. And there's a bunch of evidence and papers and studies and stuff. It looks like all of that is better face to face. On the other hand, there are some real benefits of work from home. And the big two there are you save on commute and the average American European, you know, saves something like 70, 80 minutes a day, of which almost half of them, they spend working more. So if you're an employer and you let your 
employee work from home, they're probably working about 30 minutes more that day because, uh, you know, a lot of their commute they're using for, you know, leisure, childcare and stuff, but they're working more. And then the other thing is it's on average quieter at home, not, not for everyone, mm-hmm. but typically people say home is quieter than the office. And that's really important for concentration, what's called deep work. You know, a very standard week might be Monday, Friday, I'm at home. I'm doing more reading, writing, kind of heavy thinking work, preparing presentations, you know, pondering stuff, maybe Zoom calls, one-on-ones with other offices. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm in every day. It's kind of frenetic. It's high-frequency meetings, presentations, you know, training sessions, lunches, very social. I feel like I don't have a minute to think, but I'm bonding, I'm mentoring people, I'm, I'm creating ideas. And it looks like that maybe is the best of both worlds. It's kind of a mix of three in-person, high-intensity days, and then maybe two days that you have some greater reflection and quiet work on the Monday, Friday. Mm. What's interesting about that model also is that if a company were to implement that model, then the days that people would come in for hybrid work would be uniform as the same days. Because I've anecdotally heard many people complain that when given a hybrid schedule with the option of which day to come in, uh, which days to come in, which days to stay home, they end up in an office that is only sparsely populated. And so those opportunities for collaboration still aren't there because the right people aren't there at the same time. You're totally right. So this is why firms are moving much more towards picking days. So there's a real battle here between what I call choice and coordination. So one extreme is choice, whereby you say to your employees, let's say, look, I want you in two days a week, but you choose the days. And then everyone chooses their day. Some folks are in Monday, some Tuesday, some Wednesday, et cetera. The other version is you say, I want you in two days a week and it's going to be Tuesday, Wednesday. Now, you're correct in the first, the choice version, you can probably save a bit of space. It still turns out most people don't really want to come in on Fridays, but there's less people in on every day. The downside is you come in, you want to have a meeting of, you know, your team of six and like, you know, Sarah or Ron is at home. And so what do you have to do? You come in and four of you are in the office, two are at home and you say, well, we're going to have to, you know, connect them in by Zoom. And then you think, OK, maybe the four of us go into a meeting room and we link the others two in on Zoom. But, you know, that doesn't work very well because the folks at home feel kind of left out. The four in the room are having side conversations. And they're like little heads. And so then typically my experience of companies have said, look, why don't we just be equal and everyone goes on their own laptop? But then you get the situation people have come into the office and they spend three, four, five hours a day on their laptop on Zoom or Teams, and they just say, like, what's the point? Why have I come in for this? So increasingly, from experience, companies are saying, look, coordination is where it's at. The reason, as you say, is when you come in, you really come in to work with others face-to-face and, you know, to be off screens as much as you can and more have interpersonal contact. And so there's been much more move towards coordination. In some ways, it's not that radical because if you cast your mind back to 2019, most jobs had a five-day week and 9 a.m. to 5 p.m. And so, you know, the week is 168 hours. You could have said, anyone, you can work. You have to do your 50 hours a week. You can do it nights or weekends. But, you know, that didn't happen. Nobody was working. You know, no firm was saying, look, if you want to work from 7 p.m. to 4 a.m., Monday to Friday, you can do that. Pre-pandemic, you coordinate on five days in the office. It's why post-pandemic, the same reasons are forcing us increasingly to coordinate on three. That's definitely a win or two, whatever it is. But there's clearly less choice than some people want. The big trade-off is when you come and everyone else is there. And you're right. I hear a lot of complaints. There's really a 2021 issue 
about low energy. So in 21, a lot of managers were saying, when you back, we want to keep density down. We're still worried about social distancing. So why don't you choose? And in fact, if you want to choose different days, that's great. But then you had this horrible experience of coming in and dead offices. So yes, you're exactly right. We're not using the office fully. In fact, there's now a lot of startups that are trying to exploit that and saying, let's take two firms, have one that, for example, is Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, pair it with another that's Thursday, Friday, and they can share the office. And, you know, one of my students is starting up a company doing exactly that. And so that, I think, is the future and how we may more efficiently use space. Mm, Right. And that leads to, of course, the many conversations about the ramifications that this has on office spaces, particularly Class B office space, which has higher vacancy rates than, than it previously did in major cities, as well as the donut effect on cities. Can you talk about that? Yeah, you are exactly right. You're spot on. There are a couple of things going on. So one is the donut effect named after the American donut, which is, you know, has all the, uh, is hollow in the center. So with one of my co-authors, Arjun Romani, we've actually looked at, we used what's called United States Postal Service data. So it's amazing data. You can see by zip code, by month, where people are moving. Because whenever you move, the Postal Service updates your address and it has this, what's called the master address file. So you can see incredibly accurate moving data. And what we see is about a million people have left the center of America's biggest cities. I think New York, San Francisco, Chicago, uh, you know, Los Angeles, since the pandemic. They mostly left in 2020 and they've not come back. So it's not that they left and returned, they left and stayed gone. Why is that? Take New York. Imagine you're in tech or finance or law or something. You used to go in five days a week in 2019. Now it's 2023. You're only going to the office, let's say, two, three days a week. You're thinking to yourself, you know, I want a home office. I want a bit of space and I can put up with a longer commute. So we've seen about a million Americans move out to the suburbs of basically the same cities. It's not like they've gone to Hawaii. You know, a few people have, but mostly they've stayed in the same rough areas. They just moved out. And so that's created what we call a donut effect. For anyone owning housing, or an apartment, relatively city centers become cheaper. I mean, they're they're definitely not cheap, but their prices have gone up less in the centers versus the suburbs. You can see this very clearly in Zillow. So big city suburbs have gone up about 50%. Big city right in downtown has gone up about 10% since pre-pandemic on average. That's one big change that's happening. That's on kind of residential. If you look at commercial real estate office buildings, you're Totally right. There has been a bit of a drop in the demand for space because, you know, enough companies have either gone fully remote or they've had a bunch of employees, let's say HR, IT support, call centers, you know, benefits gone remote within the office. They've shrunk. So there's less demand for office space. Right. What's happened is companies have said, look, we're going to do hybrid. But when you come in for those two, three days a week, you want it to be nice. Like no one wants to come into, you know, a nasty office with blinking, flashing lights and a kind of scummy entryway and bad facilities. So if you're going to come in, we're going to have a class A or sometimes called a trophy office building. Those things have not done too badly in central, you know, New York, San Francisco, et cetera. What's really suffering is kind of nasty, small, pokey offices that, I mean, why are you going to travel 45 minutes into the center of town for them? The hope is those things can be converted to apartment blocks, but some of them can't. The nightmare office is something built in 1980 with massive floor plans for hardly any windows. Like you can't do anything with these buildings. And they're right now sitting empty and they have been for the last two or three years. And it's not clear what, you know, what's ever going to happen to them. 
Right, right. Because if you are more than between 25 to 30 feet away from a window, then it can start to feel quite cave-like. And if you've got like a football field-sized floor plan, which was popular back in the day when everyone wanted big open office spaces, then essentially the perimeter of the building could serve as residential, but you've got this entire interior that is just deep interior. I've heard of a few cases in which Again, with the donut analogy, I've heard of a few cases in which architects and engineers have donutted out the center of the building, creating a, an interior courtyard, but that's incredibly expensive. Are there any other plans, even ones as extreme as that, or any other solutions for, for what to do with all of this commercial space, unused Class B commercial? Yeah, first off, you're exactly right. If you look at buildings built in, let's say, 1910, 1920, it's before mm -hmm. we had mass electrification. So all the offices needed to have daylight. They're relatively easy to convert into apartments. You take, you know, each floor and you can break it up into six apartment buildings. To be clear, there are some real legal restrictions. So in New York, every bathroom has to have a window. So if bathrooms have to have windows, bedrooms have windows, living rooms have windows, kitchens not always, but often have windows. You can imagine it's very hard to take some massive football field sized office and build, you know, small apartments. So little ones are fine. The ones that are cursed are think of something built in 1983 for Goliath National Bank, which said he wanted massive floor plans. It's now, you know, 40 years later. It's looking kind of out of date, jaded, it has low ceilings, nasty tiling. I mean, it's not easy what to do with these buildings. You can either slash the rent so it's so cheap that somebody moves in and has this cavernous building, or you can punch huge holes down the center of it to generate light, which is incredibly expensive. Or in some cases, some of these things are going to remain empty for the next three years and probably eventually be demolished and then mm -hmm. replaced. But yeah, it is very hard. I mean, another version uh, for folks that are politically active is maybe push to change the regulations. You may think, look, if you can take some of those buildings and generate a lot of very low cost, afford, very affordable housing, maybe there is some trade-off to say have bathrooms without windows in. I mean, maybe every apartment has to have windows in at least two rooms, but maybe you can have some internal bedrooms. Since you know, I in London I actually had an apartment that had no windows in one of the bedrooms. It wasn't great, but if you can get up and you know go to the living room, it's not so bad. And certainly, if you say your rent will be half the amount for that, there's a lot of folks that will go for it. Yeah. Typically, the pushback tends to come from fire safety, because without a window for ingress and egress, it becomes a fire hazard. Yeah, no, you're right. I mean, in California, every building, including home buildings, have to have inbuilt sprinkler systems. So I think what it's going to take is a combination of market forces are going to push the rents down so these things, you know, people, it's worth to punch holes or they get scrapped. And also, we're going to have to be more flexible in regulations. But it is a big issue. I think the city where it's most problematical, the cities tend to be the ones on the West Coast. So if I take San Francisco, I live 50 miles from there, I'm in the Bay Area, and that's been hit by multiple things. You know, first there's work from home, then there's the big tech slowdown. And then somewhat unfortunately, pre-pandemic, if you cast your mind back to, let's say, 2015, 2016, there was an enormous push against tech. In San Francisco, do you remember the demonstrations against the Google buses and everything? Right. San Francisco politicians passed what at the time seemed kind of reasonable anti-business laws and tax increases, etc. But that turned out just to be horrible timing. So you got this, you know, triple whammy of work from home, downturn in tech, anti-business taxes, and suddenly, you know, the city's kind of half empty. So that is ground zero. San Francisco is the hardest case of all. 
We'll come back to this episode after this word from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by State Farm. Are you a small business owner looking for insurance that fits your needs and budget? Look no further than State Farm. State Farm agents are not just insurance providers. They're also small business owners who live and work right here in your community. They understand the unique challenges of running and protecting a small business. When it comes to small business insurance, State Farm knows what it takes. Create a plan that fits your needs and your budget. State Farm agents are ready to help you choose personalized policies that truly understand your business. Ensure your small business with a fellow small business owner. Talk to a State Farm agent today and get started on personalized small business insurance that fits your needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. All right, so what are some of the next really big goals that you're saving for? Maybe you're saving for a down payment on a home. Maybe you're saving to buy your next car in cash or to at least make a pretty big down payment on your next car. Maybe you're saving for a kid's college fund or for your own college fund. Well, there's an app called Monarch that makes it easy to help you reach your financial goals. In fact, the Wall Street Journal named it the best app for growing your savings. Monarch is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. Create custom budgets, track progress toward financial goals, and collaborate with your partner. And now get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com Paula. Monarch has a very simple, intuitive design. They have loads of built-in features that help you collaborate with your spouse or partner, with your financial advisor. You, know, you can invite them to your account at no extra cost. They'll get their own login info and a joint view of all of your finances. You can customize it to look exactly like you want it to look like. You can customize the types of notifications that you get. You know, I've set mine up so that I only see the big ticket stuff. I personally don't want to see the little things. I just want to see big ticket items. So I've set up my notifications accordingly, but you can do it however you prefer. You can change the layout of your dashboard. You can make it your own. And Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying out Monarch for myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, listeners of this show will get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com slash Paula. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash Paula for your extended 30-day free trial. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search, it's to match. And you can do that with Indeed. Indeed is a matching and hiring platform that has over 350 million global monthly visitors. It allows you to schedule, screen, and message so that you can connect with candidates faster. And beyond just hiring faster, 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. They leverage over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, which means Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Whenever I hire somebody inside of Afford Anything, I'm doing so because we are already overloaded with work. We have way too much on our plates, and so we need to hire so that somebody can start taking some of that stuff off of our plates. But hiring itself is added workload on top of already busy workload. So it's great to have a platform like Indeed that helps you hire faster and find higher quality matches. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Paula. 
Just go to Indeed.com slash Paula right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Paula. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What do you think are the best cities for a work from home setup? Um, well, one thing is we see outside, once you move outside kind of the top 25 cities by size, they don't really have much of a donut effect. So if you think of somewhere like, I don't know, Columbus, Ohio, mm-hmm. uh, or Portland, Oregon, these are more, you know, medium sized cities. You know, I don't have the numbers on the top of my head, but you're looking at, you know, places of maybe two, three hundred, four hundred thousand. Um, those places, the suburb is still pretty approachable. The donut effect tends to be in these massive places like Chicago, D.C., New York. Interestingly enough, if you look at smaller towns and cities across the U.S., so look at, think of, I was talking to someone about Bangor, Maine. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that has 30,000 people living there. They've actually done pretty well. And the reason is a lot of people have left, say, central New York, moved out to smaller towns and cities. They have jobs that may require them in once a week or maybe for three days every three or four weeks. If it's like that, you can afford to live three, four hours away from a big city. You know, you only have to come in every four weeks. There's enough flexibility in some roles that you can do that. So it turns out, interestingly enough, smaller town cities have done well. The other place that's seen as a boom is kind of what I call holiday resort locations. Mm-hmm. So Tahoe, you know, the beach, uh, places with great national parks, because there's enough people that are still fully remote that they have this, you know, incredible geographic flexibility. And if you're going to live somewhere, you want to live somewhere that's beautiful outside if you can. And so we've mm-hmm. seen that those kind of holiday resort locations also done very well. Do you see that continuing or shrinking as fewer people remain fully remote? Shrinking a little bit. So to put numbers on it, right at the peak of the pandemic in April, May 2020, 60% of Americans are fully remote. I mean, that's an enormous, it's an astounding number. So the typical person, everyone listening, you know, more than half of your listeners, I'm sure I was, you were, I mean, pretty much everyone we know is mostly was fully remote in the peak of the pandemic. That fell relatively fast as folks were called back in. It's continued to trend down. It's now about 10%. It does look like it's trending down. That does put a bit of downward pressure, you're right, and take someone like Tahoe. On the other hand, for folks that are only going in one or two days a week, they may put up with three, four hour commutes. You know, I can imagine there are people I know, our friends who decide to have the lifestyle, they live three hours away and they drive up for three hours on, you know, they get up, they leave the house at 6 a.m. on a Tuesday. They're in work at 9 a.m. They stay overnight near work in a hotel and drive back at five on Wednesday. And, you know, they have two days of horrible commute, but the quid pro quo is they get to live somewhere far away with a lot of space. Right. How do work from home arrangements intersect with isolation loneliness, some of these emotional and psychological challenges that people face when they don't have colleagues that they interface with on a regular basis? Hybrid looks like it actually improves mental health. At least getting to work from home one or two days a week is better than going in five days. I finished a large randomized control trial with a company called Trip.com. They're a big global travel agency. They're quoted on NASDAQ. They have about 40,000 employees. And there we took 1,600 people in two divisions. And we randomized. So if you had an odd birthday, so if you're born on the 1st, 3rd, 5th, 7th, 6th of the month, you got to work from home on Wednesday and Friday. And you have an Mm -hmm. even birthday, you had to keep coming in five days a week. Mm -hmm. And we saw folks that work from home 
saw a 35% reduction in quit rate. But importantly, we had these surveys on work-life balance, happiness, stress, all of these improved a lot. And the stories you hear is starting from five days in the office, if I go down to four and three, that is typically seen as positive. It's less commuting, it's less stress. In fact, the surveys going back, I remember I was at the London School of Economics 25 years ago and someone there called Richard Layard was working with Danny Kammerman, the Nobel Prize winner, and they had all these surveys on happiness. And it turns out if you ask people hour by hour whether they're feeling happy or unhappy, the second most unhappy activity in people's days is work, but the most unhappy is commuting. People hate commuting even more than they hate work. So if you let people work from home at least two days a week, it looks like that clearly improves kind of mental well-being and you know work-life balance. It's less obvious once you start to go four or five days a week because you get this offsetting effect of more isolation. In fact, in another randomized control trial I did, we had people that were randomized into working from home four days a week. We ran the trial. They're all volunteers. We ran the trial for nine months. At the end of it, about half of them opted to go back, and they said they found it very isolating and lonely. So what we see is, I think, in the data, if you're, say, 38, you have three kids, an active social life, you may easily feel that, look, I've got a lot of connectivity at home. I don't really feel like I need to go into the office. I'm fine. If, on the other hand, you're maybe 24, you're single, you're living in you know, a small apartment, you may really feel very lonely and isolated being at home, particularly if you have to work in your bedroom because you don't really have any other room. And so it depends a lot on demographics as to how people find fully remote. But in the survey data, we find that 30% of Americans want to be fully remote. The other 70% want to come in at least one day a week. In the survey data, the attitudes between workers and managers differ. Why is that? Yes. So managers in advance are uh, much more negative on work from home than non-managers. And in fact, in the randomized control trial we did in China, in advance of the randomized control trial, we surveyed everyone and said, what do you think the impact of work from home will be on productivity? And managers gave us a number, it's about minus 3% of allowing folks to work from home two days a week. And non-managers gave us about plus 2%. So it's not an enormous difference, but that's, yeah, that's a, quite a big gap. We ran the experiment. At the end of it, we re-polled them, and managers are basically, you know, in, gone from negative to positive. So managers, I think, are very nervous in advance of losing control, losing visibility, losing mentoring. I think if you can manage the process well with good performance management. So, you know, well, if you were like my manager, would you be assessing me and giving me feedback, evaluating how I was doing? If you can set these kind of things up, it makes sense to allow me to work from home for, you know, a couple of days a week. If, on the other hand, you're pretty disorganized and chaotic and you use what I call management by walking around, you tend to manage you by walking past my desk, seeing how my there typing is the screen on, does it look like Excel or Word or something sensible, then it's harder to let me work from home. And so managers early on tend to be skeptical. What we've seen over time is their views have tended to align more and more. They've had experience of it. You know, it's like... Um, you're worried about something, you try it out. We've tried it out now for three years and it isn't as bad as people feared, but both for managers and workers generally it's tending towards moderation. So typically on both sides of managers, non-managers, they tend to head towards something like two, three days a week on average. They want to come in and the other half, they want to work from home. Mm, interesting. The big buzzwords right now are both AI and AR. We've got chat GPT on one side, which simplifies a lot of work on one side. And then we've got Apple Vision Pro, which uh, as of the time that we're recording this, they made the big announcement, what, yesterday? 
Yeah. And that's almost, as a user experience, the opposite of ChatGPT. One is ChatGPT is simple and minimalist. Apple Vision Pro is immersive. And so it's been kind of fascinating to watch these these two trends develop simultaneously. They're both widely talked about, and I think everyone has a sense that both are going to change everything in ways that we're not quite sure how. How will either or both impact the future of remote work? So super interesting question. AI, I think, is going to make it harder to be fully remote for a bunch of fully remote workers. So AI, let's break down into like hardware and software. So software is pretty impressive. So ChatGPT mm-hmm. 4 and you know eventually 5 and 6 looks really incredible. These things are starting to pass the Turing test. You don't know if you're typing in commands whether this is a human or not. Right. The hardware is not that good. We're, I don't know, 10, 20 years at least from having Terminator land whereby someone walks in, you can't tell they're human or robot. Currently, robots are like incredibly clunky, expensive, you know, massive. So if you go into an office, you're not going to replace. We're nowhere near replacing, you know, Gary at the front desk or Susan is doing catering, for example, with a robot. I mean, they're far from being able to do that. Some tasks you can automate, but a lot of stuff needs in-person people. So hybrid and fully in-person jobs are mostly safe. Where AI is threatening, I think, is for relatively repetitive, relatively low-level, fully remote jobs. So think of payroll, HR, call centers, IT support, benefits, a bunch of these jobs which are the majority of the current 10% of remote jobs, they are under threat from AI. They're actually under threat from offshoring as well. So I talked to you know so many companies that are saying, these are things we're going to offshore to Mexico or Colombia, Argentina or the Philippines, et cetera, because the folks there are you know doing basically about as good job as we can get someone in the US and they cost you know 40% the rate. So I think AI is the thing, the most threatened by AI is fully remote jobs. It's not so much you know, accounting professionals, for example, it's more people that are fully remote doing more repetitive things. The Apple Vision is very different. Apple Vision, I think, supports kind of hybrid because I think it makes, my prediction is it will make what we might think of as Zoom calls now much more appealing. So it's funny, everything you see in Star Wars comes to pass and that Jedi Council, <laughs> you can imagine, you know, you have one of these headsets on, it could look like your other seven co-workers are there in space. And Look, it's not as good as being there in person, maybe, but it, it's getting closer to it. It's getting better and better. And so a remote a Zoom call is set 60% as good as in person. An Apple Vision meeting may be 80% as good. And there'll be a bunch of things you decide, look, rather than coming in three days, we probably need to come in two days. So I see at your Apple Vision supporting hybrid work, making it more appealing and probably cutting at the marginal number of days we need to come in. Interestingly, I think it also supports multinationals. Mm. A lot of what I heard from the pandemic is a lot of big companies said it was amazing. The pandemic brought the offices, different offices closer together because they're all on a level playing field. I remember one person saying pre-pandemic, he was the only person in London. And he said he always felt left out because there'd be these in-person meetings in the US, in the Cleveland office, Chicago office, it was remote. Now everyone's on the same Zoom screen and he feels completely on a level playing field with all the others. So I think Apple Vision, to the extent it makes us more remote will also bring people together and kind of globalize us in a sense. Well, those are all of my questions. Is there anything that I haven't asked about that you'd like to emphasize? Um, no, great. You you did a huge amount of background reading and research, or you're incredibly informed. I couldn't, you know, some combination <laughs> of both, I suspect, but you totally knew your stuff. And I, I was very impressed, actually. Uh, thank you. Thank you so much for spending this time with us. 
Where can people find you if they'd like to look for you on the internet? I have a LinkedIn page. I post new facts, new data about every other day. So if you just look, you know, Nick Bloom Stanford, it will come up on LinkedIn. Ten seconds on the clock. How many things can you name that are always growing? Like your hair, your net worth, I hope. Your income, your investment portfolio. Again, I hope, I hope. Hey, how about the revenue in the business that you run on Shopify? Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, whether you just started or whether you've been in business for 10 years, whether you're selling accounting textbooks or windshield wiper repair kits, and whether you're selling in person or online. If you're online, know that Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. And you can leverage AI with Shopify Magic, an AI-powered all-star. Now, what I like about Shopify is that it's there for you, whether you are just beginning or whether you are doing your first million in revenue, your first dollar to your first million plus. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. They have award-winning help. And businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. So sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash Paula, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash Paula now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Paula. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Thank you to Dr. Nick Bloom. What are the three key takeaways that we got from this conversation? Number one, ideas and attitudes towards remote work may still take time to evolve. We carry with us historical legacy. And even when our technology, when our capabilities allow us to break free of that legacy thinking, the legacy thinking often still permeates the culture. In other words, technology often moves faster than our attitudes. The key technology is personal computers. So once you have your own computer at home, you're not shuffling pieces of paper. Then you have email and the internet. Really, the last jigsaw pieces for what we're using now came in about 2010, 2011, 2012, which was cloud and things like Dropbox, so we can share files Paul, if you and I are working on the same file, I don't need to be emailing it back and forth. They sync automatically. And the other big thing was video calls. So Zoom in particular, but Skype, Teams, et cetera. Zoom, for example, was founded in 2012. So if we look back about a decade ago, by 2013, we could have been doing this. Why we didn't adopt it in such numbers until 2020, I think was kind of slow to react as a bit of a mistake. You know, there are other things. I always think I have kids in school and they have these massive summer holidays, like three months off. And we have these huge summer holidays because kids used to, 150 years ago, be let out of school to harvest the fields, right? No children are doing that anymore, but we still have these three-month summer holidays. And it's kind of a legacy. And I think going into the office five days a week for everyone was basically a legacy as well. And that legacy could have been abandoned. 
10 years ago, and it took the pandemic to shake it up. Understanding this can help manage expectations around remote work. And, and this has been in the news quite a bit lately. There are headlines that say that X percent of people, X percent of employees say that they would quit if their bosses wanted them to work fully back at the office five days a week. There are a lot of headlines right now around differing expectations, battles between management and employees. And in the context of that, understanding that we still, like he said, summer break at school, the whole concept of a summer, a three-month summer holiday, you know, that's a legacy as well. So once these things get baked in, it can be quite hard to change them. And recognizing that is the first of three key takeaways. Key takeaway number two, there are many unexpected reasons and benefits that drive hybrid work arrangements in which a workplace, a company, an organization can often get the best of both worlds. Some of these are obvious. Uh, on the days that you don't go into work, you save the commute. But some of these are less obvious. The collaboration, for example, collaboration and innovation, there's a lot of data that backs the idea that collaboration and innovation works best face-to-face. -face. That's why people go to conferences. That's why writers who are collaborating on a script or on a song, writers will sit together around a writing table because that kind of brainstorming, that creativity and brainstorming and, and mentoring does work better in person. On the flip side, when people don't have to commute to get to that writer's room, they often work more. And so there are pros and cons to both arrangements. And that's much of the impetus behind the hybrid model. The hybrid model recognizes that there are pros and cons to both. The reason people want to come into work and why firms want their employees in is for collaboration, creativity. So the big three of coming in, when you talk to managers, they say, look, we want mentoring. It turns out to be better in person. We want collaboration, building culture, we want innovation. And there's a bunch of evidence and papers and studies and stuff. It looks like all of that is better face to face. On the other hand, there are some real benefits of work from home. And the big two there are you save on commute and the average American, European saves something like 70, 80 minutes a day, of which almost half of them, they spend working more. So if you're an employer and you let your employee work from home, they're probably working about 30 minutes more that day because, you know, a lot of their commute they're using for, you know, leisure, childcare and stuff, but they're working more. And then the other thing is it's on average quieter at home, not, not for everyone, but typically people say home is quieter than the office. And that's really important for concentration, what's called deep work. You know, a very standard week might be Monday, Friday, I'm at home. I'm doing more reading, writing, kind of heavy thinking work, preparing presentations, you know, pondering stuff, maybe Zoom calls, one-on-ones with other offices. Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, I'm in every day. It's kind of frenetic. It's high-frequency meetings, presentations, pres you know, training sessions, lunches, very social. I feel like I don't have a minute to think, but I'm bonding, I'm mentoring people, I'm, I'm creating ideas. And it looks like that maybe is the best of both worlds. And so that is the second key takeaway. Finally, key takeaway number three. Your work environment has a massive impact on 
your sense of well-being, and your sense of happiness. Professor Bloom talks about randomized control trials that look at the overall efficacy of a work-life arrangement and found that the impacts are very different depending on your demographics, your age, your relationship status, the number of people in your household. These characteristics create a wide dispersion in how work from home impacts people. We saw folks that work from home saw a 35% reduction in quit rate. But importantly, we had these surveys on work-life balance, happiness, stress, all of these improved a lot. And the stories you hear is starting from five days in the office, if I go down to four and three, that is typically seen as positive. It's less commuting, it's less stress. In fact, the surveys going back, I remember I was at the London School of Economics 25 years ago and someone there called Richard Layard was working with Danny Kammerman, the Nobel Prize winner, and they had all these surveys on happiness. And it turns out if you ask people hour by hour whether they're feeling happy or unhappy, the second most unhappy activity in people's days is work, but the most unhappy is commuting. People hate commuting even more than they hate work. So if you let people work from home at least two days a week, it looks like that clearly improves kind of mental well-being and you know work-life balance. It's less obvious once you start to go four or five days a week because you get this offsetting effect of more isolation. In fact, in another randomized control trial I did, we had people that were randomized into working from home four days a week. We ran the trial. They're all volunteers. We ran the trial for nine months. At the end of it, about half of them opted to go back, and they said they found it very isolating and lonely. So what we see is, I think, in the data, if you'll say 38, you have three kids, an active social life, you may easily feel that, look, I've got a lot of connectivity at home. I don't really feel like I need to go into the office. I'm fine. If, on the other hand, you're maybe 24, you're single, you're living in you know, a small apartment, you may really feel very lonely and isolated being at home, particularly if you have to work in your bedroom because you don't really have any other room. And so it depends a lot on demographics. Those are three key takeaways from this conversation with Dr. Nick Bloom, an economist from Stanford who has been studying remote work since before 9-11. Thank you so much for tuning in. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I hope it gave you insight, context, things to think about, food for conversation. If you enjoyed the episode, please share it with a friend, a family member, a colleague, your boss. The easiest way to share any episode is by forwarding our show notes along. You can subscribe to our show notes for free at affordanything.com slash show notes. That's affordanything.com slash show notes. Open up your favorite podcast playing app, leave us a review. And while you're there, make sure that you hit the follow button so you don't miss any of our amazing upcoming episodes. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find me on Instagram at Paula Pant, P-A-U-L-A-P-A-N-T. And I will catch you in the next episode.